Hello, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is the Griffith University podcast, A Middle Ground. A Middle Ground provides independent analysis by Australia's best political scientists and policy researchers. It was the federal election result that few saw coming. Prime Minister Scott Morrison is triumphant after winning the unlikeliest of victories, while the Labor Party is licking its wounds, with the party not getting anywhere near the 76 seats it needed. So what does this miracle result, as Scott Morrison described it, mean for Australians for the next three years? Griffith University's Professor of Politics, Anne Tiernan, gives a middle ground the breakdown of the wash-up from this federal election. Professor Anne Tiernan, welcome to a middle ground. Great to be with you, Nance. So here we are, we're taking politics to the people in Brisbane CBD. Quite apt, I think, after this election that uh, is, is shock an understatement or, or what's the feeling that you're getting from the people as you're wandering around in days after this result? Yeah, I think uh, shock in lots of ways because I think uh, the polls were were predicting, mm. you know, a, a Labor a victory, uh, even if it a narrow one. But look, one of the things you know when you come from here is that if you go to the polling station and there's not just a vibe that feels like a baseball bat, that the swing's not on. And so lots of people uh, have said to me in the period since, and, you know, even in our own analysis, that we just didn't feel it. Yes, that was the impression you had too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but the polls kept saying it. So you thought, oh, well, you know, but it didn't... Like When Queenslanders decide to vote against a government, you can just feel it at the polling station. And that kind of sullen determination wasn't there when I turned out uh, on Saturday. So what does this mean for polling, essentially? Do we do we throw the whole thing out now? Or do we only do we only take notice of polls when it's um, regarding the leaders or particularly maybe one seat? But it just seems this is not the first time that the polls have been out, is it? But wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it just be the most fantastic unintended consequence if we did move away from the mad obsession with polling uh, and started to actually focus on performance and delivery? Because that's not what happened in this campaign, really. Uh, so I think the kind of obsession with it uh, is is incongruent with what we now know are the big methodological uh, impl- implications or you know deficiencies. So I would be I would be really pleased for one if we could move on from that whole era of obsession with polling. And I think uh, Annabel Crabb put that question so beautifully on Saturday night. You know, will you stop um, changing leaders on the strength of it? Uh, so I think everybody around the country thought that was a bit of a cracker. But uh, you know, I, I think it is just so hard to predict. You know, we've got the sort of mobile phone phenomenon and the extent to which you actually can't find people. But I think people lie. I think people don't want to talk to people about how they're going to vote. I mean, certainly exit polling, surely that, that's been the indication there, that people are obviously fibbing on their way out. Absolutely. And in, in, this time, Nance, of course, the betting markets, which are the other place that you go once you've looked at the polls, um, you know, that's been such an extraordinary thing too. So how to just be so out of step with the sentiment, uh, I think is very interesting. I suppose the only poll that did reflect it to a degree was that leaders... The, the, the two leaders. Uh, Bill Shorten just never seemed to to gain on Scott Morrison. No. So did this was this really a presidential election more than a, a climate change election? Well I I think, you know, Morrison ran a presidential campaign because what choice did he have? He couldn't show his team. Uh, it was so divided and, and you know, um, disunited and uh, problematic. So he ran a presidential campaign. Shorten tried not to. He tried to do something more distributed uh, and to focus on the team, but he couldn't get any 
attraction. And in the end, everything was focused back on Shorten and his lack of popularity. So, you know, you have to give it to the Liberal National Party Coalition. Uh, a fantastic uh, campaign, uh, seizing on Shorten's unpopularity and the complexity of Labor's policy message and turning that into something that then just opened a hundred fronts that Shorten couldn't ever get on top of. He's never been popular here. Um, and, you know, I've wondered about this uh, in the period since whether, you know, his inner city Melbourne um, sensibility just doesn't wash in Queensland or, or how much of it, Nance, is about his role in the toppling of Kevin Rudd where many people think this malaise began. I've really wondered about that. Are people's political memories as long as that? I mean, who knows? How pivotal was Queensland then if Queensland really never warmed to Bill Shorten? Well, everybody's, of course, focused on Queensland and there's a you know, much uh, kind of lamentation and uh, bollocking on about what's gone on here. The fact is that uh, the coalition got swings to it in lots of different places uh, and that um, third party preferences went much more to the coalition than they had um, in other places. Labor's primary vote collapsed here and particularly, you know, we're sitting in the seat of Brisbane right now, 27%. You cannot win from there. Um, and when the Greens are almost out polling you in inner city seats, it just shows you the depth of their uh, challenges. Um, but of course, Queensland had most of the key seats. Uh, so a lot of the focus is here for that reason. And the ones that we very much expected uh, Labor to be a show in just didn't come off. And then of course, all the issues about climate change um, and uh, coal and you know this symbolic politics, that it's a binary choice, which you know I actually think is a false uh, is a false dichotomy, uh, but that's very much how the campaign played out. But no, I don't think it was just Queensland, but the temptation of the national media and commentariat will be to say it was all about Queensland. The most marginal seats, the seats that really counted were here, and Labor struggles to do well here always. So we've uh, already got a, uh, a moniker for this effect. Yeah, there. yes, yes. The hashtag Quexit was Quexit. yesterday, Quexit, and uh, I believe this sort of uh, had its genesis in a um, an SBS story that sort of, uh, you know, had people cutting Queensland off the map. Now, you know, George Christensen would like nothing better uh, than for Queensland to secede. But I think it's, um, I think it's indicative of that, uh, that what might have been part of the problem of the campaign is the disrespect for the diversity of views and that people are entitled to have a legitimate concern about their economic future. We've been talking about this on this podcast for some time, you know, particularly in the wake of the 2016 federal election. Uh, and the 2017 state elections, the regions are not doing well. Um, and, you know, we might talk about employment vulnerability and distress, and I can run you off the list of the most distressed um, electorates, and they're the ones that stayed with the coalition on Saturday What night. do you put that down to? Well, about economic insecurity and about where about people being concerned that they're locked out of opportunity, they're locked out of the capacity to make a transition. Um, and, you know, a good deal of this is about services. A good deal of it is about broadband, internet and access to those things and, and disinvestments in education and opportunities for people. Where is the, the new economy for people who are in many of these uh, places now where royalties are up, the 
mining industry is still delivering um, employment and employment services, you know, sorry, mining services is also delivering employment for people. So it's one thing to sit in Fitzroy and, you know, worry about this. Um, it's entirely another to confront the reality. And, you know, we've seen this in work that we've done in Gladstone, uh, in the wake of the, um, the end of the construction boom around LNG. They're, these are people's real lives. They're their lived experiences. And it's not okay to disrespect them. And Bundaberg, where we were a few months ago, yes, lots of struggle town. And, uh, and, and Townsville, Nance, you know, and communities like this that have had their major industries devastated. I don't think this is about people not understanding climate change. I think this is about people saying, where is the transition plan? I can't see it. Um, and I don't trust you who don't, you know, know what it's like to be me to deliver it as a political class. How uh, significant was the Adani cloud over everything? <laughs> We've talked about this a lot, haven't we? I mean, I've got to say that the anti-Adani convoy um, was the kiss of death. And, and not only in those coal seats, I think. Um, uh, very few people I've spoken to who are Queenslanders or, uh, and of course, huge rates of internal migration in this country. So, you know, Queenslanders are, are a diverse bunch made up of people from all kinds of places. But I think many people just went what the hell are you thinking coming up here and telling people how to be no one no one likes that no one likes the discourtesy of uh, you know disrespecting people in that way and I think set against the farm invasions and some of that protest work it was just seen as uncivil um, and, and I don't think that only affected the kind of the atmosphere uh, in the coal seats, in, in those regional seats in and around central and north Queensland. I think it had a wider impact. And as we were saying to Queensland, yes, it's had a big effect, but it's also a bit divided, isn't it? It's going to be interesting to see how Adani does wash out. I mean, it seems that it probably will go ahead now. Is that your view? And what will that mean for Far North Queensland and the Great Barrier Reef? Look, I think uh, it reflects the sort of fragmentation of politics, you know, that we're seeing everywhere, but is perhaps especially pronounced in Queensland because of the geographic, demographic and sort of spatial um, dynamics. Uh, you know, the already the state government, the state Labor government is in a world of pain uh, looking at, because of course they try to straddle the same divide that Bill Shorten found it impossible to. Um, the, you know, the coalition very cleverly, although it looked like a bit of a disaster at the beginning of the campaign, kicked the approvals issues to the state government. Um, it's tried to run this careful line of, oh, well, you know, if it stacks up environmentally and financially, and I think none of us believe it's going to be financed, actually, particularly. Um, but you're still going to... Ha it's a potent symbol of that, uh, in, of that tension between old and new economy. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Labor, state Labor, is very concerned about um, the, the wipeout that it will face. And yet, Anastasia Palaszczuk connects with people in those communities. So I think if there was any leadership rumblings about Anastasia's leadership, um, that's now been alleviated somewhat. Uh, but, you know, she has a lot of challenges and she's got some really significant budget challenges at the state level because Labor had made a number of promises that would have taken quite a lot of pressure off the Queensland state budget. So is it as simple as perhaps the Sunshine Coast Daily would make out that the Labor government here is the next to go with Anastasia Palaszczuk in the crosshairs? What an appalling, an appalling um, 
you know, front page yesterday. And I think that, you know, that just shows the real... We just cannot get these people, these editors, to understand these issues. And I was very pleased to see Darren Chester come out and condemn it in the strongest possible terms. There's a nasty vein of misogyny in that, and there's a nasty vein of awfulness uh, in all of it. It's just appalling. So, but I do think, uh, you know, we now have fixed terms in Queensland. Uh, next election is the 31st of October 2020. Uh, the government has uh, a policy agenda. It's advancing Queensland's priorities that it talks about, but who knows? And I mean, you know, the Premier has been uh, trying to say, look, we've approved lots of lots of other development in this area, um, and so how come everybody's so focused on Adani? Scott Morrison, Matt Canavan, the LNP will push this as hard as they can, and in a sense, the federal government um, being LNP uh, is, is a perfect storm for Anastasia Palaszczuk because their capacity to use incumbency to support their state colleagues. Uh, I think Deb Frecklington's leadership will come into um, uh, contention down the line. Uh, I don't think those boys will let her stay there if they think they're a show of winning, but it's not obvious that there is a, uh, you know, a, a leader of any profile uh, who could step forward. But look, you know, six weeks ago, we thought, or <laughs> six days ago, we thought that Scott Morrison couldn't win. So how would any of us know, really? So looking more broadly around Australia, I mean, the Liberals have lost no seats other than Tony Abbott and Gilmore in New South Wales with the Warren Mundine factor being parachuted in there. Um, is this going to go down as one of the great electoral victories? It will go down as one of the great campaigns. Uh, and Scott Morrison will have huge authority. Um, and, you know, considering the LNP members here were behind the push, they were obviously on to the sentiment. Uh, and, you know, maybe their presence in regional uh, Queensland gives them uh, an insight into that. Of course, it seemed extraordinarily implausible and that they'd blown up the whole show, didn't it? Um, so he's a fantastic campaigner. Now the hard stuff starts, I think. Uh, the cabinet making with a pretty thin talent pool a wafer-thin talent pool. Um, the with tax cuts? Well, you know, the tax cuts that may or may not be able to be legislated, that'd be quite helpful for the deficit, uh, wouldn't it, really? The having to factor in promises that were made up on the run, um, you know, and didn't go through any kind of cabinet process. So I think uh, governing and trying to proliferate or populate an agenda, um, having not had one, um, through the campaign is a challenge. He's got immense authority. Labor's going to be very demoralised, as you always are, after, an, you know, an unlosable kind of election and they're going to be very preoccupied with their leadership uh, woes. But let's just see how it shakes out. Um, you know, if Anthony Albanese becomes the leader, he's a pretty effective parliamentarian, and so partly it'll be about, you know... Um, Mobile, or not mobilising, but sort of galvanising the base to channel their rage and disappointment and crestfallenness into a productive force rather than a negative one. And, and that needs to begin with understanding what's gone on here and not bringing these unhelpful, um, chauvinistic, intolerant, 
ignorant views about people in parts of regional Queensland. Gabrielle Chan has written an excellent book about this, uh, you know, that I'd encourage people to look at, who rusted off uh, looking at the experience of, the, of this extraordinary gulf that's developed between, you know, regional Australia and the rest. Queenslanders have a stronger sensibility to that, I think, by virtue. There's a connection there, isn't there? There's a much stronger connection there than I think exists anywhere else. And that's, uh, you know, partly about the political power of the regions, uh, but also because I think, you know, when those regions are affected by disasters, everybody's up and, uh, you know, and running, trying to assist. So, you know, I think, and of course, you know, it's a branch office economy. It's a public sector economy in lots of ways. So the industries that are down here in Brisbane or the head offices that are down here in Brisbane are very much responding to the major export industries, trade exposed industries that are in the regions. So, yeah, I think that understanding is stronger. And, you know, it's a pity that um, that more the journos don't get out a bit more and I understand the business models are inhibiting them from doing it, Nance. But, you know, podcasts like this are a really important way of getting that perspective into the national debate. And I think... You know, I really hope that people take this seriously in terms of something is wrong in terms of people's sense of, of opportunity and possibility. How is How are we going to bridge that in this country? It's a very existential challenge to our politics. Was it also as simple as franking credits, death taxes negative gearing or was it really the region's fight back to, to No, I, I think it was all of those things. I think Jim Chalmers was spot on last night on Q&A when he talked about uh, the, the, you know, the temptation for a simplistic um, analysis but actually the reality was the combination of factors. The um, Labor Party went with you know, a bold and ambitious policy agenda but it did take on a number of constituencies who were then very... Um, uh, not vulnerable, but suggestible to a scare campaign. So I think a big lesson from this is how many fights you buy at the one time. Um, and I think they just bought too many fights with population groups. If they, you know, the de demographics of those seats um, in and around, you know, if you think about Longman or you think about Dixon, the retiree communities in and around, you know, Flynn uh, and, you know, and, and other places like that, you know, just the, the, the demographics kind of affected, but, but they weren't, um, Labor wasn't able to actually explain how different groups would be affected and it's just... They couldn't get cut odd. through. They couldn't get cut through and then they were vulnerable to, you know, what Tanya Plibersek would call kind of scare campaigns and misinformation. All right, but that's not so new. So it's almost as though they'd done all this great policy work and, you know, wouldn't it be disappointing if you could never take policy to an election again if, like, that was the takeout? But but I think the way you prosecute it, the way you engage with people on it, it was maybe just a bit too top-down and it was just maybe a bit too much all at once and I think perhaps a bit more incremental and you can hear Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers and other, you know, Chris Bowen and other perspective. Well, not that we've heard too much from Chris Bowen. <laughs> probably just coming out of his fetal position right now but you know um, I, I think those people um, do actually for responsible economic management reasons think we need to come to grips with Frankie credits and what that's costing the budget and with negative gearing and its impact on you know first home ownership so I think there's a lot of you know the policy rationale was probably the right one but it's just much harder to make those arguments now um, and you know I've, I thought to myself I wonder if instead of sort of announcing what all of them were Bill Shorten sort of sitting at home uh, and thinking you know I wonder if I'd call you know with with Bob Hawke's sort of demise in the last week of the mm. campaign if 
if maybe, you know, he'd said, look, there's this whole range of things that we need to do and the first thing I'm going to do as Prime Minister is call a summit to sit down and have everybody talk it through. You know what I mean? But And there's no tolerance for talking things through anymore. But here's what happens when you don't and people think that they're going to be badly impacted. And I don't believe that people aren't prepared to make... Um, calculations that aren't just about their own hip pocket. And I think the 2013-14 budget tells us that. People weren't just worried about them, they were worried about their children and their prospects. So I actually don't think it's all just self-interest. Because there has been a lot of comment about that people have voted selfishly. Yeah, well, that, you know, and I find that fascinating when the count isn't even over and we haven't even looked at how, you know, key demographics um, uh, voted. But, you know, clearly the groups that we thought were going to be important in this campaign, women, young people, have have not been moved by this agenda. Why is that? Why is that when, you know, well, there's a, there must be a reason and that's the reason that needs to be understood. But I do think that, you know, just in opening up all those different fronts, Labor left itself vulnerable and they must have been picking that up. And I don't think any messiah um, could have, you know, prosecuted that agenda. How could Morrison be so um, effective? Sheer, extraordinary chutzpah and self-belief relentless sticking to a very you know limited number of talking points because there was nothing to there was nothing in terms of a record to really defend so it's just amazing how they shifted the onus onto the opposition i think you know just incredibly skillful campaigning is it too early to talk about the upper house how is that going to play out how's one nation going to influence well, um, you know, Malcolm Roberts may get there, but, you know, uh, it, but at least Paul, um, Clive Palmer didn't. And, you know, Fraser Anning is no longer with us. Um, so, um, so don't say that Queenslanders can't vote strategically because I think they can actually um, in the Senate uh, as well. So, uh, look, I think it's going to be, uh, it's probably a better result for the coalition in the Senate than any of us were predicting, like nationally. Um, and I think it's probably overall, if, if today's count looks like anything to go by, probably friendlier to the coalition than we might have expected. Um, and so, you know, if they get 77, 78, then there'll be much more stability uh, because, than, than you might otherwise expect. But because I thought if they were a minority government or minority plus one, they'd have a world of pain just trying to maintain discipline on their own side. And, and, and I don't think we should rule out the potential for instability and, and madness, given the prospect of Barnaby Joyce returning to the National Party leadership, what the National Party will think it's owed. Uh, in terms of this result. So I think, think that's a possibility. Oh, I think there's a lot, a long way to play out yet, Nance, a long way to play out yet, um, as there always is. Um, and, and, you know, and while Morrison will have tremendous authority, uh, the Nats are always a challenge to manage. And, and those issues of water management, energy, they've got, there's a lot of policy legacies to sort of deal with. Well, Watergate didn't really come out as much as people thought it might. Did it? The whole, <laughs> what happened to that? No, but I mean, I think this tells us, you know, I've been talking with um, our Griffith colleagues about this and, you know, maybe people aren't engaging with the kind of mainstream, well, not mainstream media because the Murdoch press played a particular role in this campaign, but maybe people aren't watching the ABC or listening to the ABC or the the places where these kinds of stories get reported. Maybe that, you know, and, and I think Morrison's construction of the in the bubble, which has been like the absolute kind of genius play uh, in lots of ways, just made those things seem not as important as other things. But I still think 
there's a lot of accountability to come around some of those issues and how those ministers um, are recalibrated in because there's you know there's been further questions about sort of Angus Taylor in the scheme of uh, things so will can they leave him in that energy portfolio can they leave some of these players well Morrison's kind of hemmed himself in and constrained himself in lots of ways he said that Melissa Price is going to remain the environment minister well she'll have to turn up in question time she'll have to turn up and you know be represented at estimates hearings so she was missing in action pretty much the whole campaign well witness protection wasn't she just you know as as labor was sort of saying but i mean seriously very unusual lack of accountability for a minister not to turn up at all you can't hide from it forever so but he's committed that she's going to be the environment minister so there's actually is it there's sort of a long way to go in you know we're exhausted and want to you know just move on to something else um but we're, we're going to have to keep watching that was Anne Tiernan, Professor of Politics at Griffith University. And that wraps up this episode of A Middle Ground. You can follow and subscribe to this Griffith University podcast on your podcast provider, iTunes or SoundCloud. 